you would turn with me to Galatians chapter 6, that's where we'll start and we'll be in a number of passages. I cheated and had a bookmark in my Bible, so I'm there already. While you're finding Galatians 6, just kind of share some thoughts with you. Acts chapter 6 tells of how the apostles were determined to focus their ministry attention primarily on prayer and the word. That was it. That was their focus. The seeking of God's face and then the study and teaching of God's word, his truth. And for 20 centuries in the history of the church of Jesus Christ, this has been the high standard. This has been the lofty call to shepherds of the church to be in prayer and in the word. And the reason for this is that the world is at at odds with the gospel. The world hates the gospel. The evil one is at odds with God's people and he'll do everything in his power to derail the mission of the church by derailing the church's members. There is a battle raging for the salvation of souls. There is a battle raging for the sanctification of the saints of Jesus Christ. And so there's a tremendous need for prayer. There's a tremendous need for prayer by the the shepherds of the church and in seeking the Lord's face while observing the local church. Once in a while it becomes clear that the local church simply needs to walk through something together. That we need to experience what we read earlier in 2 Peter being stirred up by way of reminder. It's not new information, it's just information we need to hear once again. As I've observed our wonderful little body of believers over the past months and we've enjoyed this new facility since last June and as I and the other elders have prayed for you and for our composite Christ-likeness overall, it seemed right at this time to pause on this Lord's Day to remind all of us, as Paul said to the Thessalonian church, to excel still more in our love for one another. We will continue in Matthew and Ezra and Nehemiah next week per our normal preaching schedule. I think most often we want to deal with normal difficulties that arise in church members' lives on an individual basis. We, we counsel with one another. and we, we help each other. But once in a while it becomes clear that perhaps we ought to all pause to do some self-evaluation. And that's what we'd like to do today. And we're so looking forward to the celebration banquet this coming Friday. It's a a real highlight for our church family. But I think before we gather to celebrate what the Lord has done, it's very appropriate for us to humble ourselves before the Lord. And I have a specific reason for this. And, And I don't mean to shock you, but Grace Bible Church is not special. It may be easy to become arrogant as a church, but to be clear, God does not need us. He condescends to use us. The Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4 that the ministry we do is a mercy from God. Grace Bible Church is only as effective as we are obedient to the Lord and and we have experienced tremendous blessings from the Lord last year. It's it's unbelievable. It's going to take like an hour and a half to read all the blessings Friday night that the Lord has done. And so we would do well to heed the warnings from the pattern of Israel, the trap that the Israelites fell into over and over again, that they would receive great things from the Lord and then immediately fall away in arrogance and immediately think that they were somehow important just by virtue of their existence. This is a concern for me as your pastor. I think it is very easy 
for a local church to believe in the inherent wonderfulness of the institution of the church and forget that the Lord Jesus Christ walks to and fro among us as the living head of the church as he demonstrated with the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3. It's important for us to remember that the maturity of the church as a whole is a composite of the maturity and the growth and the faithfulness of the individuals in the church. And Romans 12 reminds us that we're to be members of one body. We impact each other. We do. We, our lives are to be intertwined and they, they ought to be. But because of that, we rejoice with those who rejoice. We weep with those who weep. And as the Apostle Paul said, when one member hurts, we all hurt. We do impact each other. Now, of course, the temptation for any preaching shepherd such as myself is to turn into a people pleaser with the goal of never challenging anyone and just stay flying high in lofty theological concepts without ever really engaging in the work of direct surgical application of the Word of God. But we have to avoid that temptation. And so for this Lord's Day, both this morning and tonight, Really one sermon in two parts. I'd like to have a time for all of us to humbly do some self-examination and some resetting for the very reason that the Lord has chosen to bless us in this past couple of years, and that is the faithfulness of our members to seek and to follow Christ in obedience. I don't want to sugarcoat this at all. I want to make certain we're clear as possible I don't want anyone to have to read between the lines or to figure out what the so-called real message is. So I'm preaching this morning and this evening on the topic of how to ruin the local church. Now, you've already given to the offering. It's locked in a safe. You cannot go and get it back. It is there. It's already in the bank. We're already on the way. Grace Bible Church has been so richly blessed. And if you've been here for any length of time, you know that. You've seen that. I really can't think of a way we haven't been blessed. I have the opportunity to speak to so many pastors and I, I, I get to have the privilege of pouring into their lives and, and they ask me, how is your ministry going? I almost hate to share it with them because I just I, I don't have a bad thing to say. The Lord has been so gracious and so kind, but I'll say it again, Grace Bible Church is not inherently special. And we refuse to engage in using God's previous blessings to somehow coast into spiritual complacency and somehow believe that we as a local church are inherently deserving of God's blessing as a church. Even in our own city, there are churches with the name Bible Church that have long passed God's blessing in their lives. And they've gone off track so long ago that members of their church don't even know what it's like to be on track. And I would say, if anything, after a year or two of such tremendous blessing from God, which we're truly looking forward to celebrating this coming Friday evening, we ought to be more spiritually vigilant, more spiritually watchful, more spiritually awake, more spiritually aware. Because that's exactly the time when we may be caught unaware. So how do you ruin the local church? I don't believe in luck. I don't believe in superstition. It just turned out this way, but I'm going to use a variety of texts to show you 13 ways to ruin the local church. And what we don't get to this morning, I'll finish this evening. So it's really just one message. And I want to urge you with all of my heart to be here for both so that the whole body might receive benefit. 
So how do you ruin the local church? And I'm, I'm approaching it from this negative standpoint because I've seen it happen. I, I, I've worked with men in which this has happened. I've observed it in local churches. And it's in churches where they always say 100% of the time, this would never happen to us. So how do you ruin the local church? First way, avoid helping each other spiritually. Avoid helping each other spiritually. We're in Galatians chapter 6, and we'll jump around to a number of texts this morning and this evening. Galatians 6, verse 1. Brothers, if even, even if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each of you looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. The immediate goal here in looking out for another brother is for that brother's sake. This is a brother who's in some sort of sin or maybe in just poor judgment, a poor wisdom. The motivation to go to that brother or to that sister is for their sake. That alone stops a lot of hurtful, unproductive interaction right there. It stops it in its tracks because the motivation is correct. It's others-oriented. The goal is to restore that brother to spiritual health, to, to care about that sister in, in them being in communion with the Lord. And you notice that this conversation is in a spirit of gentleness. It means meekness or humility. There's no arrogance. It's one sinner helping another. Speaking of which, look at the qualification to help another spiritually. Looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. In other words, if, if you take the opportunity as you ought to spiritually help another, it's an opportunity to first do what? Look in the mirror and analyze your own heart. Paul seems to give this as a requirement for helping another spiritually. And the spirit of this is brotherly or, or sisterly. And in fact, the next verse explains the spirit of this situation. In verse 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. This isn't an act of attacking one another. This is an act of lifting each other up, of helping each other spiritually, of coming alongside And it fulfills the law of Christ. What is the law of Christ? That's a short way of saying love one another. That's the law of Christ. Romans 15.1 says, Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. It implies care. It implies relationship. It implies a tenderness and affection. Now, this isn't abusing this responsibility by being continually confrontational. This isn't wearying those around you with constant nitpicking. It implies being judicious. It implies being occasional. It implies being wise. It implies having earned the right to speak into someone's life because you have a relationship that you've built. But this is so effective in strengthening the entire body of Christ Now, we would say, and we believe this with all of our hearts, that the preached Word of God is the primary means of our sanctification. What we're doing right now, this is what builds Christ's likeness. But as you interact with each other, as you exhort one another, as you encourage each other, the effectiveness of that local church becomes exponentially greater. Why? Because God sees a body of believers all striving for Christ's likeness together. Why would God send unbelievers to a particular church to hear the gospel or interact with people in that church? Because he already sees that they are discipling one another, that they're doing what Romans 15, 14 says, that they are, they're counseling one another already. They're, they're interacting with each other in a meaningful, positive way. 
But of course, the one who wants to ruin the local church should not only avoid helping each other spiritually, but there's a second way to ruin the local church. Fail to listen to one another. Fail to listen to one another. Now, the bearing of one another's burdens, as Paul talks about in Galatians 6.2, it's only effective if there's a softness and a willingness to listen to one another, isn't there? We're going to hop back to the Old Testament here. Turn with me to Proverbs chapter 12. Proverbs 12. The book of Proverbs is essentially wisdom from God on how to live in righteousness before Him. And I I just want to very briefly show you how this book is peppered with a specific admonition to the wise. It just happens on occasion. Just, Just about the time you forget about it, it happens again. Admonition to the one who would follow God with all of his heart. Proverbs 12, verse 15. And I, I'm just showing you this for effect. Proverbs 12, 15. The way of an ignorant fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man is he who listens to counsel. And about the time you, you forget that, we get to Proverbs 13, 1. A wise son accepts his father's discipline, but a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. And about the time you forget that, turn with me to Proverbs 15, verse 31. Proverbs 15, 31. He whose ear listens to the life-giving reproof will lodge among the wise. He who neglects the discipline despises his soul, but he who listens to reproof acquires a heart of wisdom. Did you catch that? The, The listener, the one who listens, loves his own soul. If we can state it positively, he's... He's interested in his own sanctification. And then you go through several chapters, and about the time you forget it again, chapter 19, verse 20. Chapter 19, verse 20. Listen to counsel and receive discipline that you may be wise in the end of your days. One of the saddest things for me as a pastor is to speak to a believer who's 70, 75, 80 years old and is still living like a baby Christian. It's sad. That's a life where you didn't listen. And about the time you forget it again, chapter 23, verse 22. It's just peppered in here to remind us, chapter 23, verse 22, specific to parents, but the principle is there. Listen to your father who begot you and do not despise your mother when she is old. By the way, that means adults listen to their parents still because they have wisdom. Chapter 25, verse 12, you think, well, I don't think there's any more admonitions about listening, but here it is again. Chapter 25, verse 12, like an earring of gold and an ornament of fine gold is a wise reprover to a listening ear. Oh, this takes it to a whole different level. To you as a believer, the person who has the courage to come to you and say, I would like to take the risk of speaking into your life, that person is like is golden to you. They're a treasure to you. They're infinitely valuable. And then just to put the final nail in this, chapter 27, verse 6. Chapter 27, verse 6. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. And I would challenge all of us, if you have a brother or sister in Christ who never once ever in a decade or two decades has said something hard or difficult to you, I would question the level of that friendship. Deceitful are the kisses of an enemy, but faithful are the wounds of a friend. Could I remind all of us of this? If someone does choose to have the courage to speak to you, and that goes all the way up to me as well, 
Remember that it took a great amount of bravery to do so, and, and probably that person doesn't have the whole story. But listen for the grain of truth. Be thankful as you see the pure and humble motivation of the brother or sister speaking to you. I've seen churches in which no one has the courage to pour into each other's lives, and you know what they are? They're ineffective. They're not real. And they might, be, they might have 5,000 members. But no one's pouring into each other's lives. It's a facade. It's a big fake. It's a big show. What is that, what's happened in that church? The church has decided compositely that we'll just gloss over sin. We won't take sanctification seriously. And if you dug just a little bit beneath the surface, you would find heinous sin all over the place going unchecked because nobody's holding each other accountable. And so I would urge all of us Not only receive admonition, but thank the person for it. That's body life. That's a church that's blessed by God. Let me give you a third way to ruin the local church. This is a little bit more complex, but that is misuse your Christian freedom. Misuse your Christian freedom. The freedom we have in Christ is that we're freed... From the constraints of the Mosaic Law, it doesn't apply to us. We're freed from the constraints of legalistic, uh, overly specific applications of Scripture that fall into the category of conscience and, and wisdom issues. We don't make laws that aren't in Scripture. To talk about this, let me have you go all the way back to Galatians. Galatians 5. There are two extremes in the realm of Christian freedom. Both are sinful and both are cautioned against. Two extremes. One extreme, you're familiar with this term, is legalism. Legalism, very simplistically, is the making of a law or a rule which is necessary for pleasing God, but it's one that isn't explicitly demanded in Scripture. There are all kinds of laws and rules, and and we might even put these into the category of Christian mythology, Uh, things like if you're going to get married, you have to get married in a church. That's a rule. What if there isn't a church building around? Or what if your church won't hold the number of people? That's a, that's a false legalism. There are all kinds of ways we make, uh, we make legalistic rules. That's one extreme. The other extreme on the other side, though, is license. License, the belief that since I'm in Christ, I can do whatever I want. The law of Christ doesn't apply to me. I just, I just go with the flow. I can ask forgiveness for everything anyway. And I don't worry about what anybody else thinks. I don't worry about who's offended. I'm going to do whatever I want. I'm in Christ. Uh, Grace is free and I'll just do whatever I want. The classic example that Paul gives in Romans 14 is that of dietary restrictions and, and that of observing certain days is set apart. And especially to the Jewish believers of his day who were still very comfortable in the tradition of keeping dietary laws and, and keeping certain Jewish holidays, Paul's admonition was to be balanced to not be unloving and unkind by ignoring or disregarding the convictions of someone else. On the other hand, neither are we to impose our conscience issues on others as a false standard of righteousness. Now, let me give you a really silly example so that you, you can understand this. If for some reason, for whatever reason, somebody believed that for them, the wearing of the color red was sinful, you're all looking down, oh no, what am I wearing? That, that, that that's just sinful. I can't wear the color red. And they genuinely, genuinely believe in their heart 
that wearing the color red is an offense to God. And they have some weird hermeneutic like, like, well, red was the blood of Christ, and so we're going to reserve the color red for the blood of Christ only. I can't wear red. What do you do with that person? According to Romans 14, you don't tell him he's silly. You don't tell him he's an idiot. Maybe you help him see he has more freedom. But I'll tell you one thing you don't do. You don't flaunt wearing red around him. Because it's unkind. It's unnecessary. On the other hand, we don't impose our conscience issues on others as a false standard of righteousness. The person who wears red is not allowed to tell everyone else that they can't wear red either. Galatians 5, verse 13, Paul gives a, a great measure of how we're to think about our freedoms in Christ. How do we think about them? Verse 13, For you are called the freedom, brothers, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. The measure is to use our freedom to serve one another, to be others-minded. Verse 14, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Just because something is permitted doesn't mean that it's wise, doesn't mean it is prudent, doesn't mean it's the right thing to do. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, 23, all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. That's wisdom. And in fact, Paul warns what happens when believers get stuck defending a conscience issue as some sort of extra-biblical law, or they even flaunt their freedom without regard for others. Those two extremes. Here's what happens, verse 15. But if you bite and devour one another, beware that you're not consumed by one another. You know, even the world as a whole knows that personal freedom can't be unlimited. In the last few years, we've seen groups decide that Personal freedom can be unlimited, and what's happened? We see chaos as a result, right? It, it leads to anarchy. A society cannot survive when every individual gets to run over anyone he likes in the name of gratifying his own desires. That doesn't work in the world, much less in the church. Again, referencing Romans 14, Paul addresses the issue which was a major concern in his day, and that was eating meat which had been sacrificed to idols. Now, what was the issue here? Some Christians were so fearful, and rightly so, of idolatry that they abstained from not only eating meat sacrificed to idols and then sold in the market, but they abstained from eating all meat just in case. They wanted to just be clear about that. And Paul asserted in Romans 14, 14, that for that person, eating meat was wrong because their conscience dictated that. That didn't mean they got to impose it on others, though. The issue was not of intrinsic evil. The issue was that of conscience. And we were to, res- to respect one another in this. The believer ought never to go against his conscience, even if it's an immature and undeveloped conscience as a newer believer. And others should never criticize those convictions. And one whose conscience dictates certain restrictions ought not to condemn those who feel freer in that particular regard. Romans fourteen fifteen says, For if because of your food... Because of food, your brother is grieved. You're no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. In other words, your, your vegetarian Christian in that day who was trying to make sure I never will eat one bite of meat sacrificed to idols invites you over and you say, what can I bring? And you say, bring a main dish and, and, you, and, and you bring over a big platter of ribs. That's not kind. It's not necessary. 
And the one should never criticize another for those convictions. One whose conscience dictates certain restrictions ought not to condemn those who feel freer. The ruling principle is love, it's consideration for one another. The believer with perhaps an unnecessarily strict conscience and the believer with a more freed conscience are to be ruled by love to accept and serve one another in Christ. Let me give you a fourth way to ruin the local church. Fail to guard your thoughts of one another. Fail to guard your thoughts of one another. The thought life is where sin begins. That's the soil where the seed is planted. The destruction of relationships, the withering of your own soul can reach a level that's almost beyond comprehension when you as a believer fail to seriously guard your thought life. I want to have us go to another familiar passage. Turn with me to Ephesians 4. Just a couple of pages to your right. Ephesians 4.32. Very classic admonition to all of us. And What we're going to see is that the key to the Christian's thought life is the gospel. The forgiveness we've received in Christ. That's the whole key. That's everything. Ephesians 4.32. Very last verse of the chapter. The Apostle Paul... Having just said, let all bitterness and anger and wrath and shouting and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Verse 32, instead, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, graciously forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has graciously forgiven you. Be kind to one another, literally be good to each other, be excellent to one another. But here's the, the part I want to really focus in on. We're to be tender-hearted. It's a word that literally means have, you ready for this, tender guts. The inside of you, the real you is tender. You have empathy in your inward parts. It's not just external. It's something you genuinely have cultivated. Someone says or does something you don't like or don't agree with or don't understand, you're to think highly of that person. You're to think the best of them. You don't immediately go trashing that person to others. And the standard is to forgive one another as God in Christ has, has forgiven you. Let me put it this way. The gospel, the center of the gospel is the fact that God has forgiven you. But how would you like it if God is observing your daily sin and he calls some angels over to him and, and he says, look at that, what a jerk. Can you believe he's doing that? That's not what God says. God's recorded what he says What God says is, his sins were as scarlet, and now they're white as snow. His sins were red like crimson, now they're white like wool. I have removed his sins as far as the east is from the west. I have remembered them no more. Just as God in Christ has forgiven you. When you get angry or irritated at a fellow believer, whether it's justified or not, and you refuse to remember how you've been forgiven you've made yourself to be more righteous than God. Because you've essentially said, God may forgive him, but I sure won't. Then we go out and verbally murder someone by saying unkind and negative things to others. No, no, no. We grant mercy because God has done that for us. Is it any wonder in the church in Corinth, that God was killing believers who were taking the Lord's table, celebrating the grace of God, while they knowingly held anger and bitterness toward others. It was abominable. 
The church is characterized by mercy and grace toward one another will be fruitful for the kingdom. Now, is this perfectionism? Absolutely not. At Grace Bible Church, we want everybody to know that we're all sinners saved by grace, right? And we want to invite the lost to come and listen and say, the only difference between me and you is that I've believed on Christ and you haven't. That's the difference. Now, you might ask, okay, I believe this and I I agree with that. But what do I do when my thoughts are running away and I I can't control them? How do I deal with those thoughts? Well, we go from one classic passage to another. Turn to Philippians chapter 4. The Apostle Paul gives all kinds of great things to think, ways to discipline the mind toward righteousness. And I want to camp on this for a while. It's very familiar to you, but I don't think we can do enough of this. Philippians 4 verse 8. The context of this is, is... anxiety, not being anxious. And Paul gives the the final admonition on how to not be anxious about anything. Philippians 4, verse 8, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is dignified, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, and if anything worthy of praise, consider these things. It's very popular advice to say, listen to yourself. That's the worst advice you can take. I'm a sinner. Don't listen to myself. Scripture doesn't call us to listen to ourselves. Scripture calls us to discipline our thoughts. Now the grammar is very clear here in verse 8. It's something you do yourself on purpose. This is intentional. This is on purpose. This is proactive. The end of verse 8 says, consider these things. It could be translated, regard these things. Count something as, reckon, consider, keep a mental record of something. It's a disciplined act of the will, a disciplined act of the mind to specifically guide your thoughts in the biblical direction. And by the way, this is why it's so imperative that you're constantly soaking in the scriptures so you know what there is to think. So let's go through these. What should you think? First of all, think those things that are true. That which is a firm reality, that which is factual, not based in emotion, not based in how I feel. In moments or situations of anxiety, our emotions lie to us. You can't trust them. Years ago, Dr. James Dobson wrote a book called Emotions. Can you trust them? You don't need a book. Just say no, you can't. How you feel is a terrible way to judge anything. In fact, how you feel, the best way to use that is to say, if this is how I'm feeling, then probably what's right might be the opposite of that. It takes discipline, but this is a call to tell yourself the truth about the situation that may be making you anxious. God in His sovereign will has allowed this. This is true. God will take care of me. This is true. I am going to heaven. This is true. I don't have to overreact. This is true. My emotions don't have to rule me right now. This is true. Even if I feel bad, I may praise the Lord right now. This is true. How about those things that are dignified? In ancient Greek literature, this is a word that means to think lofty thoughts. To think on things that are majestic, royal, splendid, noble. Ultimately, the loftiest, most noble thoughts we can think of are on God, on Christ, on the Spirit. This is why we have such passages in Scripture that show the magnificence of God. If you're having trouble thinking dignified thoughts, then go to those passages. Meditate on the high and the mighty and the the, the glorious 
and the lofty things of God, which will translate into dignified thoughts toward one another. I promise you it will. Instead of stewing on hateful, resentful, bitter, angry, upset thoughts, cultivate glorious, honorable thoughts before Christ. Take time in His Word to see God before you. Paul says, think on whatever is right. The same word is translated in the New Testament as righteous or things that are sincere. These are thoughts that conform consciously to God's standard of righteousness. Am I thinking sinful, unholy thoughts about the situation or am I thinking the thoughts that God wants me to think? The Apostle Paul was a wonderful example of this himself. When he was writing this epistle to the Philippians, he was in prison in Rome And while he was in prison, some were publicly proclaiming the gospel and cutting down Paul, claiming that that God was against Paul because Paul was in prison now. And, And they're out there trashing his name while they're preaching the gospel. Do you remember how Paul responded? Philippians 1, he said, The former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition rather than pure motives, thinking to cause me affliction in my chains. What then? And here is him directing his thoughts to what is right. Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. Did you hear what he said? They think they're causing me affliction. But they're not. Because he's thinking right thoughts. Whatever is pure. This speaks of that which is moral, that which is clean, that which is undefiled. Are the thoughts you're thinking things you would say aloud to the face of Jesus Christ? Or are you exalting and elevating yourself in your own mind? What are the most pure, godly thoughts you can think about the person that may be causing you stress or anxiety or difficulty or even anger? What are the purest, most godly thoughts? Get to the Word and think the pure thoughts of God. Let those thoughts dominate Whatever is lovely. Interestingly, it's the only time this word is used in the New Testament. It means pleasing, agreeable, kind, friendly, pleasant, sweet, gracious, generous, patient. We know what lovely means. In the Old Testament, the concept of loveliness or, or pleasantness is seen often in the Garden of Eden. Genesis 2, 9, out of the garden, Yahweh God caused to grow every tree that is desirable or pleasant in appearance. We understand that. Psalm 135.3, Praise Yah, for Yahweh is good. Sing praises to His name, for it is lovely or pleasant. Solomon said to his wife in Song of Solomon 7.6, How beautiful and how pleasant you are, my love. Are your thoughts about one another gracious and sweet and pleasant? Or let me put it this way. If you could suddenly materialize your thoughts into a physical object, would they be something that you would decorate your home with or hide in the closet? That which is commendable. That which is commendable. We get our word euphemism from this. What's a euphemism? It's a substitute term, right? We don't say he died. We say he passed away. We don't say she sweats, we say she glistens (laughs) or perspires, maybe. We don't say, I just bought a used car. No, I bought a pre-owned car, right? We do this all the time. 
What Paul is calling us to do, in essence, is to put a positive view on whatever or whomever is making you anxious. God will certainly use this situation to help me trust Him more. God is not only working in my life, God must be working in the life of this person that is causing me anxiety. God's solution will be really magnificent. The longer God makes me wait for a solution, the greater will my praise of Him be, the greater the resolution will be. I'm sure the Lord has a wonderful purpose for this. I I can deal with this all the way to the grave if I have to because that's the power of the Spirit in me. And verse 8 summarizes at the end, if there is any excellence, if anything worthy of praise, consider these things. And in fact, we could summarize even further by thinking about one part of how love acts, how it behaves in Paul's classic poem on love in 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13, 7, Paul says that love believes all things. What does that mean? It means that love believes the very best, the very most hopeful, the very most lofty, the most optimistic thoughts. Apply this to that person that perhaps you're at odds with. Believing the very best, believing the very most hopeful, the very most lofty, the most optimistic thoughts will accomplish the task all at once of thinking on things that are true, dignified, right, pure, lovely, commendable, things that are excellent, things that are worthy of praise. And I say this with all love, but Secret, sinful, condescending thoughts are the root of sinful behavior, the root of eventual hatred, and the inability to treat somebody with basic humanity. The inability to even make eye contact with someone because of the thoughts you've been cultivating about them. To feel like you can hardly have a civil conversation with someone. This is all rooted in the mind. All of it takes place in the mind and in the heart. And what's the natural outflow of failing to guard your thoughts of one another? It takes us in slippery slope fashion to a fifth way to ruin the local church. Gossip regularly as a sinful habit. Gossip regularly as a sinful habit. Turn with me to 1 Timothy 5, 13. 1 Timothy 5, 13. Gossip regularly is a sinful habit. Paul is addressing here in 1 Timothy 5 practical ways how younger widows in the church are to conduct themselves, but the lessons are very poignant for all of us. 1 Timothy 5.13, speaking specifically to younger widows, but again, this generalizes very easily. 5.13, and at the same time, they also learn to be idle as they go around from house to house, and not merely idle, but also gossips and busybodies, talking about things not proper to mention. Not merely idle, but also gossips. This is the only time this Greek word is used in the New Testament, and it means basically to babble on about others. It speaks of useless, foolish, hurtful talk. In other words, the type of talk that ungodly, unsaved women of the world would think is normal, would think is regular. Let me give you a definition of gossip. This is not exhaustive, but I think it's useful. The definition of gossip is saying something about someone you would not say in his presence. Saying something about someone you would not say in his presence or saying something to someone about another that should be said directly to that person or saying something to someone about another that should be said directly to that person. The whole thing. Saying something about someone you would not say in his presence or saying something to someone about another that should be said directly to that person. If you have a problem or a disagreement, this is a cowardly and a destructive approach to dealing with 
with problems and all it does is create more problems. It may be an attempt to gain support for your point of view in order to make yourself feel better and it is a cancer in any organization, especially the church. And can I put it this way? It's a cancer in your own mind too because you begin to believe what you say. It's a cancer to you personally. It places you out of favor with the Lord. It puts you in unrepentant sin. It generally brings out the part of you that existed before you were saved. None of this is good for you. And gossiping becomes an addiction of sorts. It feels great in that moment to be a purveyor of semi-truthful information. And by the way, there's a Christian myth that says if it's true, then it's not gossip. Do you want everybody to say everything true about you all the time? That's a myth. Slander is a form of talk about others that isn't true. Gossip is, by definition, more likely to be something that's true, but it's hurtful for you to speak of it. Giving information to others that wasn't your place to give. Couching gossip in terms of prayer requests. That's the classic church sin. Habitually speaking of others in a way that isn't helpful to them, not necessary. This is the use of words of, as weapons with no regard to how it may impact someone else's life. All of you young people participating in student ministries, this applies to you more than anybody. Gossip is not a game. It is not a fun exercise of playfulness. What you speak of about one another has an impact upon the entire church body. Student ministries is not its own little distinct ministry. It, it works its way up. Speaking negatively or spreading rumors isn't a game. It's serious business. It hurts many. It affects the youth, which goes to their parents and makes it to me and makes it to the elders. And so it applies across the board. When you speak ill of another or decide to spread rumors, you hurt the whole church and you make a bunch of people waste time on useless nonsense when instead we ought to be proclaiming the excellencies of Christ. If you claim to be in Christ, whether you're 10 or 100, we don't engage in this. I know this is a difficult subject. Let me try to simplify this into two categories relevant to our functioning as a church. The first one we'll call personal gossip and the second one ministry gossip. Personal gossip is a form of murder. It's a form of revenge. You, you are killing someone else's reputation. It's a malicious trying to harm someone to make yourself feel better. Now, we are realistic. There are certainly times when there is a practical necessity to talking about someone when that person isn't there. If there's a problem of some sort, here's a simple rule. If you're not part of the problem or part of the solution, then it's not your business. That's very easy to understand. To listen to gossip is the same as engaging in it. You have a duty to stop that person, to say, I'm not going to listen to this. Have you spoken to that person? I know one pastor who has what he calls the 24-hour rule. And he says, you have now told me something negative about this person without having gone to them. If you don't go to them in 24 hours, I'm going to. And what about ministry gossip? Or if I could give it another name, the default action of most churches. This is the functioning of the church that when leadership does something that a member doesn't like or doesn't agree with, whether it's a doctrine or a moral issue or just a ministry direction, the, the default is to go tell a bunch of people your disagreement. 
You rarely have all the information to judge decisions. And, and if I could really release you, you're not accountable to God for decisions of church leadership. You are accountable for how you respond to them. And so honestly, assess if your negative reaction is due to selfishness or just feeling inconvenienced. Listen, being a, a member of the church of Jesus Christ is all about being inconvenienced. It's all about serving sacrificially. We, we don't have a section in our Grace Connect class called How to Be a Convenient Member of Grace Bible Church. Being a Christian is highly inconvenient because we live in a world that hates us. And being a member of a Christian church is highly inconvenient. And I admit the topic of gossip is a difficult one. And so let me give you two very simple and positive ways to be more careful with this. The first one is Talk less and listen more. Talk less and listen more. Proverbs 10, 19. When words are many, transgression is not lacking, and whoever restrains his lips are prudent. This verse haunts me. I speak more words than anybody in this church. Where words are many, transgression is not lacking. Proverbs tells us to listen 16 times. Proverbs 18, 13. If one gives an answer before he hears, it's his folly and shame. Talk less, listen more. If you're finding emotional pleasure in, in sharing information about other people, that's sinful and that's wrong. It's no different than shooting up heroin or drinking to the point of drunkenness. It is the same sin. The second simple and positive way to be more careful is meditate on what you should say. Meditate on what you should say. Sometimes I know it feels like the distance from your brain to your mouth is about half an inch. Ephesians 4.29 says, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. Only such a word as is good for building up what is needed so it will give grace to those who hear. Unwholesome words. It's a word that means literally words that decay. Meaning words that corrupt the opinion one person has of another. Corrupting talk. It corrupts someone's view. Rather, what are the words that are good for building up which fits the occasion? Whether well, a gracious example to the listener. We cherish Colossians 4, 6. Let your words always be with grace, seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should answer each person. My experience as, as a pastor has been that hearing a sermon about this topic might prick the conscience, but it doesn't always necessarily lead to personal, permanent change. If you want genuine, genuine change, you have to change your heart. You have to meditate on these truths. Matthew 12, 34, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So take those verses I just listed. Ephesians 4, 29, Colossians 4, 6. Eat them, drink them, live them, write them, recite them, memorize them, apply them. I think we have time. We'll do one more. A sixth reason, a sixth way to ruin the local church. And this is really a, a grander vision don't be concerned about the bigger mission of the church. Don't be concerned about the bigger mission of the church. In the realm of spiritual warfare, I, I have a hard time supporting biblically that Satan is ultra-concerned about messing up your relationships, messing up your marriage, ultra-concerned about your thought life. Those are just means to a greater end. 
His greater goal is to derail the spread of the gospel of Christ and the mission of the church. His greater goal is to tarnish the reputation of the bride of Christ. Turn with me to Philippians 4, another familiar passage, and let me show you what the greater concern is to be. The greater big picture. Philippians 4, verse 1. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, exhort you to walk worthy of the calling. I'm in the wrong book. Let's try Philippians. It sounds similar, doesn't it? (laughs) Philippians 4. Therefore, see it starts with the same word. Therefore, my brothers, loved and longed for, my joy and crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. I was looking everywhere for Yodia and Syntyche. Here they are. I urge you, Odia, and I urge Syntyche to think the same way in the Lord. Indeed, I ask you also, genuine companion, help these women who have contended together alongside of me in the gospel with also Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. These two women, Euodia and Syntyche, are in some sort of ongoing conflict. This isn't an authority issue. Neither one of them are in authority over the other. Paul urges them, giving each of them a command. I urge, meaning to command or exhort, think the same way. Literally, be of the same mind. Have the same thinking. How? He says, in the Lord. Think the same way in the Lord. That's the key phrase, in the Lord. Remember that you're both in the Lord. Verse 3 lumps them in gloriously as fellow workers, those names whose names are in the book of life. In verse 3, Paul says, I ask you also, genuine companion. This is most likely a proper name, Susagus. It's in the masculine gender. This is most likely a man, a specific leader in the church that Paul had asked to mediate between these two women. He asked Susagus to get them together, insist that they work out their difference. Why? For the sake of the gospel. And he reminds them, they've contended together. They've labored alongside Paul and the other Philippian believers. I want you to remember something. The Philippian church, oddly enough, started out as all women. Acts chapter 16 tells this story. Paul and his companions now teaching them and and leading them. And no doubt these women, Euodia and Syntyche, were instrumental in inviting others to come hear the teaching of the apostles and in sharing the gospel with their friends and their neighbors. And now here's a sobering thought. When Epaphroditus brought this letter to the church at Philippi, he brought one copy. He did not bring a bunch of copies to hand out to everybody to read silently. Everything's going well at the public reading of Paul's letter to the Philippian church. I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche. They're in the room. He names these two women and tells them to get refocused on the gospel. And you notice the cause of the disagreement isn't given. Paul's basic reminder is, this isn't about you. It's about the gospel. Unbelievers are dying and going to hell and you have some sort of silly argument about something I'm not even going to mention. There are basically two flavors of conflict in the church. Good conflict, conflict which is for the sake of the truth, the sake of the gospel, the sake of sound doctrine, the sake of unwise sinful behavior. Those are good conflicts. 
And there's conflict based in selfishness or thinking about my own wants, my own personal preferences. I can do whatever I want. This is a conflict between two church members. And so the prescribed treatment is for Susicus to mediate between them and they're commanded to come together and to think the same way. Meaning what? Put the mission of the church first. Stop being selfish. And could I say this? What other more worthy efforts could Suzicus have been engaged in? What did Suzicus have to put aside? What did he have to fail to do? What did he have to wait on? What did he have to put off to deal with this conflict? This is why Paul commands the Thessalonian church in 1 Thessalonians 5.13 that one of the ways the church loves their leaders is to be at peace with one another. Be at peace with one another. If you've raised kids and they grow in any wisdom at all, kids make a deal. Hey, let's work this out among ourselves so that we don't have to bother dad with it, right? Because when we bother dad with it, we can't sit down for three days. Keeping the bigger mission of the church is so very healthy. It keeps us from being continually self-focused except for the necessary focus of personal sanctification. Well... The Lord Jesus Christ is our head. Jesus as the head of the church is not an honorary position. In his introduction to the church of Ephesus in Revelation 2, he calls himself the one who walks among the lampstands, the lampstands being the individual local churches under his charge and his care. I've been here long enough to know you and you know me and I I know you. I know that you love seeing new people come to faith in Christ. I know you love seeing new believers discipled. I know you love seeing the mature believers really stepping up and and ministering and discipling one another. I know you've loved the process of seeing our little church grow and seeing the Lord add to our numbers because of your faithfulness. I, I know that. And so I know you're highly motivated that we function as the church in which Christ does walk to and fro among us, observing and assessing that we might be pleasing to the very one who gave his life for us. I know you all want that. Amen? Let's go to the Lord together, and tonight we'll do seven more. All right? Thank you, Father, for being our Father. We are amazed and astounded at how you have used this church body in the past even just months. How many new believers? How many new members? And so, Lord, we are cautioned by the example of Israel, the poor example, that it seems that every time you blessed them and gave them rest, that they turned from you. And and while we don't believe that we as a church have turned from you, Lord, we're simply cautioned that this is the time to be spiritually alert, to be spiritually awake, to be spiritually cognizant of the evil one. Because, Lord, I believe with all of my heart that the desire of every person hearing this is to be a useful tool in the hands of the Savior. Lord, we pray to see many come to faith in 2023. We pray for many to be discipled. We pray for such a a broad and, and glorious network of discipleship happening within our church body, Lord, that it's almost unmappable. We can't even figure out how many great things are happening. I believe with all of my heart that is our desire. But it does start with our humble obedience and we would ask you, Lord, to make us more like Christ. Craft us 
into those that exude the grace of God in Christ. Also that we might present the fruit of this ministry to our Savior as a prize that He has won. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.